BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome back to Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Hey, I'm Adam Isaac, the producer of this show. Indre is off this week, so we have someone filling in. Adam Bristol is an amazing science communicator. He has a PhD in neuroscience. He also happens to be Indre's husband, so we were able to force him to host this week's show for us. So anyway, without further ado, here is Adam Bristol. This week, I spoke with University of Cambridge historian Seb Falk about his new book, The Light Ages, The Surprising Story of Medieval Science. Now, Seb's book caught my attention initially because I've been reading about medieval accounts of the bubonic plague. You remember that prior pandemic, uh, a rather timely topic, but this book was not about that, and it was not at all what I expected, yet I was completely hooked. As Seb explains in our interview, his approach to the study of medieval science is not the standard look for artifacts of medieval life in modern times. Rather, his exploration of the intellectual pursuits were within their own time period. That is, why medieval scholars studied what they did, how they were educated, and what advances they made. So it's medieval science with a specific focus on astronomy, but on its own terms. And the book's title, The Light Ages, you can already tell is a stark rebuttal to the colloquial usage of the term, the Dark Ages. And I came to appreciate through this really wonderfully written and thoroughly researched book that while medieval scholarship was certainly low tech, it was very much high intelligence. They had textbooks, universities for 300 years, and an estimated 1 million graduates. They created truly extraordinary mechanical devices to measure and count. So these were not brutish dolts you saw in Monty Python in the search for the Holy Grail. Seb, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So please set the context for us here. When we talk about medieval science, what is the time period that we're talking about? And, and what are those types of human inquiry and invention that you consider medieval science insofar as that term was not exactly what we think of as the scientific method that we have today? 
That's a really important question. So the Middle Ages, as they're normally understood, is the period from about 500 to about 1500 of our era, of the Christian era, uh, roughly speaking from the fall of the Western Roman Empire in Western Europe to what's normally called the Renaissance and the developments involved with the European conquest and discovery of the Americas, what become the Americas, as well as technological and scientific developments uh, like the printing press uh, and the Renaissance in art in Europe. So those are the kind of boundaries of the period. Uh, and it's a thousand years and a huge amount happens in a thousand years. And in terms of medieval science, well, it's very different. And as soon as we start to use a word like science, we conjure images of the modern scientist in a laboratory with modern scientific equipment uh, pursuing modern scientific goals. And medieval science wasn't very much like that. But of course, we want to know about things that medieval people did to examine the world around them, to manipulate the world around them, uh, and to understand the way that nature worked. And of course they did that. Of course they looked at the skies and they looked at nature and they tried to figure out how it worked. They tried to form theories and they tried to make use of it. Uh, so what I do is I look at the way that medieval people understood the world around them and I try to figure out why they did what they did, uh, how it's different from what we do today, and uh, what are the perhaps surprising similarities. And so, you know, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about, you know, the rationale or the value in studying what we think of as the Middle Ages for a modern historian. Now, you have a compelling line early in the book in which you say, quote, the measure of medieval ideas should not be how closely do they match our superior modern ways. So what are some of those misconceptions of the culture and ideas of medieval times? And, and why would a modern historian like yourself, what value would you find in exploring some of the innovations and ideas from that time? Well, it all depends on what kind of questions you're asking. So there are two basic ways of understanding the history of science. One of them is to look at a long history of science and to try to tell a long story of development from uh, some state of apparent ignorance in the past to some state of advanced knowledge at a later date, perhaps in the present. Uh, and that is a, a very easy and traditional way of understanding the history of science. But of course, it ignores everything that people already knew at your starting date. And it ignores all the things that we don't know. Uh, and uh, we don't even know what we don't know right now. Uh, another way of looking at it is to look at it, as you might say, horizontally. In other words, to look at a particular period or a particular place and to try to uh, understand how science fits into the culture of that time or fits into uh, the culture and the life of that particular place. Uh, and that's one thing that I think is uh, very important to do, uh, because you can't understand science without understanding how it comes out of the culture uh, that produces it. Because, of course, all scientists are humans, uh, and they're all uh, engaged in human activities, and they all have human concerns, and none of them is a scientist 24 hours a day. So 
Uh, we have to understand how science fits into politics, how it fits into economics, how it fits into society. And you might think that understanding medieval science as a medieval phenomenon doesn't have very much to tell us about today. But actually it does, because it teaches us that even something so remote, something where people uh, believed that the sun went around the earth uh, and that uh, unicorns had something to teach us about the moral status of mankind in the world, even that has something to tell us about where the boundaries of our knowledge lie, what our motivations are for studying, uh, and they have it has a huge amount to teach us about what science can and can't do, uh, which is something that's particularly relevant uh, in this day and age uh, when science has such visible and obvious limits. Science is limited uh, by the capacities of uh, people to put in practice the knowledge that scientists gain. It's limited by the will of politicians to uh, follow scientific guidance. Uh, and so the Middle Ages, surprisingly, has a huge amount to teach us. I thought a very clever and instructive narrative arc that the book has is that it centers around a brother John of Westwick. Now, Brother John was a monk who lived at St. Albans Abbey, which is north of London, seemingly at the end of the 14th century. And, you know, who, wh why is he of interest? What led you to Brother John of Westwick? And then how do you use the character of Brother John of Westwick to, you know, elucidate many of these concepts we describe in terms of the culture and ideas of the Middle Ages? John of Westwick was an ordinary monk who had an extraordinary adventurous life. And both of those parts were really important to me. He's a real person, I have to be clear. I haven't invented him. And I wanted to center my history of medieval science around an ordinary person because so many histories of science are parades of great men, usually men in most histories, and it gives the impression that science proceeds through a series of eureka moments by these extraordinary individuals, and everybody else is wowed by their genius, and then they move on to the next eureka moment by the next extraordinary individual. And science doesn't work like that. Science has never worked like that. Science has worked through day-to-day -day asking questions, answering questions, inquiring, observing, calculating, theorizing. And I wanted to show how an ordinary person could contribute to the development of science, could follow uh, their own interests, uh, and how their scientific mindset, how their questions that they asked about nature fitted in to all their other interests. But he's also an extraordinary adventurous individual. He wasn't just uh, a monk who stayed in the same monastery for his whole life just praying, as many of them did. He traveled. He probably went to Oxford University to study. He certainly went up to Tynemouth Priory on the cliffs overlooking the North Sea in the far northeast of England, where the weather was cold and the monks were constantly complaining about the wind and the, and the waves and the roaring of the tide. And he, in order to probably escaped that monastery. He went off on a failed expedition to Flanders, uh, what is now Belgium, uh, to take part in something called the Bishop's Crusade of 1383. And this was a complete failure. Most of the army got dysentery uh, and, uh, and had to return to England in disgrace. And then we find John Westwick in London devising an astronomical instrument. Uh, and the final chapter of the book is 
an explanation of how he came to do this, how he came to come up with this instrument, why he explains it in the increasingly fashionable language of Middle English, pioneered by the poet Geoffrey Chaucer, and what it has to do with his monastic vocation and his other scientific interests. So this is a man who travelled widely, he had a dramatic life, and at each stage in that life, I had an opportunity to bring in the science that would have been useful to him or interesting to him, or which he had an opportunity to study. And I use the manuscripts that he produced, his own individual personal handwriting with quill and ink on uh, sheepskin parchment to try and bring this to life, as well as the instruments he would have encountered, astrolabes, equatoria, the great astronomical instruments which monks and other scholars used to display and refine their knowledge of the heavens and other science. There's a lot there. And what I want to focus on now, because you mentioned that John of Westwick kind of rose to prominence, if you will, I guess, in, in terms of the book and the narrative of the book, is through his identification that he was the author of essentially a manual and, and many precise, relatively precise calculations of the heavens. And so he was a learned man and a, and a, and a scholar of astronomy. And you write very eloquently about why astronomy is the original science. Can you explain that? And how does the astronomy of the Middle Ages fit into the broader context of, of many people's, many, many people's daily lives? Astronomy was the first truly mathematical science. And when we think of the development of modern science, we often think of mathematization, precise measurement, uh, and that's necessary for refinement of theories and for uh, understanding uh, how scientific theories fit together. And astronomy was uniquely susceptible to measurement. Uh, in other words, people could look up at the sky and they could observe uh, that different things like the sunrise happened at different times, that shadows changed their length at different times of the year, that the moon uh, was full on certain days and then it was new on other days, that planets moved among the stars and they could measure the angles of those planets uh, to each other, to the horizon uh, and, uh, and to the stars that were fixed, the stars that didn't move in relation to each other. And all of those uh, phenomena in the heavens were measured geometrically. So you could measure the angle uh, of uh, something above the horizon, or you could measure the angle of one star to another star. So it was something that could be observed, and geometrical theories could be devised to account for all of the motions in the heavens. Uh, and then in that sense, it's the first real science. Now, astronomy fitted into everything. It wasn't just something that people could observe dispassionately and think that it had no relation to their daily life. Uh, it was generally understood that what happened up in the heavens affected what happened down here on Earth, the macrocosm up in the heavens and the microcosm down here on Earth. The way that worked was Everything that happened up in the heavens had a counterpart down on Earth. So humans were made of humors. Uh, humans were made of different kinds of substances, and those substances were thought of as being hot or cold, wet or dry. And so the planets were thought to have those same characteristics. The sun was thought to be hot and dry because it brings heat to the Earth. The moon was thought to be cold and wet because it controlled the tides. And the other planets, similarly, were thought to have these kinds of astrological qualities. Uh, and those planets were thought to affect not only human health, but also the weather 
and even could potentially impact on human behavior as well as other things that happened on Earth. So through astronomy and astrology, uh, people get a, an understanding of medicine and, uh, and weather forecasting, and astronomy seems to affect a huge amount of what happens on Earth, and that seems crazy to us now. Uh, but there's a, a substantial amount of logic behind it when you think about uh, the fact that we take for granted that, for example, that the moon affects the tides. But a tremendous amount of practical value, too. So in the book, you describe beautifully how if you're a merchant, if you're a farmer, and certainly if you're a monk at, a, at, an, at an abbey that has a regimented life where, you know, prayers are said at certain times and chanting at other times, that understanding the cycles of the heavens provide that practical information you need to make sure that those earthly duties are performed well. That's absolutely right. Of course, we can't have timekeeping. We can't have calendars. Uh, and without timekeeping, we don't have GPS. Uh, we can't have any of these things unless we understand astronomy. Because, of course, the calendar is a measurement of how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. For medieval people, it's how long the sun goes around the Earth. But it doesn't make any difference because it's always measured uh, in terms of angles. So it doesn't really matter. They're instruments which they devised based on the system that the uh, sun goes around the earth uh, work perfectly well for us even today. But the point is, as you say, uh, that timekeeping is based on this. And medieval people had a incredible understanding of heavenly motions, which allowed them to produce really amazingly refined astronomical clocks. There's one astronomical clock I explain in the book that tells the time in three different ways. It tells the mean time, the time we use today, where there are exactly 24 hours in every day, and all those hours are the same length. It tells uh, the time in unequal hours, where there were always 12 hours from sunrise to sunset and another 12 hours from sunset to sunrise, uh, no matter how long the day was, uh, no matter whether it was summer or winter, there were always 12 hours between sunrise and sunset in that system of unequal hours. And then the third one was true time, which most clocks today don't even show, where uh, the clock showed that the length of each day was not precisely 24 hours, uh, which any astronomer will tell you, but most people today don't realize, because of the way that the Earth goes around the sun and because of the way that the Earth's axis is uh, angled to the Earth's orbit around the sun, each day might be a slightly different length. And sometimes those differences can add up to throw clocks out by up to about 15 minutes. We just don't notice until, of course, after Christmas, sometimes you might think, why why are the days not getting longer? Or why is the sunrise not getting earlier? Uh, and that's because of this um, uh, solar equation, as it's known. Uh, and medieval people understood that, and medieval people could measure that and show that on their clocks. So there's some tremendously accurate timekeeping. Uh, timekeeping is perhaps the most impactful innovation of the Middle Ages, really precise uh, timekeeping, although their clocks perhaps weren't as accurate as they might have liked. That was just an engineering problem. The theory was all there. Uh, and other really important inventions like the universities and the invention of eyeglasses come from this period as well. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I want to take just a moment more to explore this concept of unequal hours to make sure that I and our listeners understand it because it is fascinating. It makes a lot of sense. And to me, it it spoke to how John of Westwick, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like John of Westwick was living at a time, a time of intellectual transitions, if you will. So this notion of unequal and equal hours. So if you think of your our, our daily lives just as we live them, how in the summer the days are longer if you're in the northern hemisphere, and then you have the, the days are shorter in the winter, right? I think that's our practical ex- lived experience. And so the unequal hours notion is that you can essentially normalize time by the duration of those daylight hours. It gets stretched out into the summer, and then it gets contracted in the winter, but yet we'll still have our 12 hours of activity, our 12 hours of time. And this was important for the monks, of course, uh, within those unequal bounds, if you will. Is is that an accurate description, a layperson's description? Yeah, that's an excellent description. Uh, I mean, I think the thing to think about is uh, we don't, you know, we measure the time in seconds. Like most of us on our on our watches or on our phones. Uh, will show the time in seconds. Uh, But we don't normally care about how many uh, seconds there are in a minute, unless you're running for a train or something and you realize you've got 20 seconds to go until the train is due to leave. And then you get really annoyed when they close the doors before the time that the train is supposed to depart. So sometimes it's a concern, but most of the time we don't care. And in the same way, people in the Middle Ages understood about minutes, but they didn't really give much attention to that because for most of their purposes, agriculture, or uh, turning up to say the prayers at the correct time in the monastery, as long as you were in the rough hour, you were you were good. You you were doing your duty and uh, and you could perform your work. And as you say, uh, those hours were different lengths at different times of year to fit in the amount of work that they had to do. Above all, in the fields, agriculture, because there's more work to do in the fields in the summer, and there's more daylight to do it in. And there's also more daylight to copy out books in the monasteries, because of course they had candlelight, but candles, as anybody who's ever tried to work by a candle knows, don't actually produce a huge amount of light compared with what you get from the sun. So they did as much work as they could do during daylight, and they they stretched the hours 
in the summer when they had more daylight, and they compressed the hours in the winter when they had less daylight. They slept less in the summer, and they slept more in the winter. And in many ways, it's a very natural way of living. But the advent of mechanical clocks, which are immensely useful, then really transition the world to thinking about time in the more of the equal hours framework, if you will. And so that's a bit of the transition that I that I thought of about a, a learned, educated monk or person like John of Westwick would be in this period during this transition from a notion or acceptance of unequal hours to a more uh, to a, a a new and novel but emerging idea of equal hours. And similarly, he was also living at a time where there seemed to be a transition, and you write about this incredibly in great detail in the book, of the transition from Roman numerals into more Hindu-Arabic numbers and, and the reasons why that's of value. But he lived in this time, but I guess the point that I would love to have you speak about is that these people had facility in both realms, if you will, both ways of thinking, and amazingly— the contraptions and devices, like Richard of Wallingford's Marvel clock you described, they basically accommodated both ways of thinking. It's just truly remarkable. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. And what's really fascinating about it is how the transition from one system to the other seems to happen incredibly smoothly. So exactly as you say, the unequal hours had been the way of doing things for centuries. It was a very natural way. It was based on the cycles of the sun and the seasons. But the equal hours were far more convenient if you were using a mechanical clock, because when you have a ticking clock, that clock is not aware of what's happening with the sun. It's not aware of what's happening with the seasons, although, of course, they do have to contend with uh, changing phenomena or changing properties of the metal and the wood that the clock is made of with changing humidity and heat. Uh, But that aside, the clock in principle gives an equal number of hours every day of the year. So it's much more natural when the mechanical clock starts to become very widespread uh, at the end of the 13th and into the 14th century, late 1200s into the 1300s, that they start to use these equal hours. And what's really fascinating is that there just seems to be an extremely smooth transition that that people just say, well, the the equal hours seem to work well with these clocks. We might as well go with it. And it doesn't really change very much in the way that people seem to live their lives. With the uh, transition from the Roman numerals to the Hindu-Arabic numerals, that's a very long, drawn-out process because people are very attached to Roman numerals. Roman numerals work extremely well for most purposes. From our point of view, we're not used to Roman numerals. We might basically understand them, but we don't use them very much day to day. They seem very strange. They seem very difficult to work with. Uh, And of course, for us, they are. But if you're used to Roman numerals, you could multiply Roman numerals. And I explain in the book how multiplying Roman numerals can be done actually pretty simply uh, with a little bit of practice. When you're used to that, you don't change to another system unless there's a really strong compulsion to do that. And that, of course, is a a basic rule of science generally, uh, that people don't change their ways of doing things unless they have a really strong compulsion to do that. They don't change their ways of thinking about the world unless they've got overwhelming evidence uh, for them to do that. And that's something that we really need to bear in mind, I think, whenever we think about science or indeed uh, think about changing people's perceptions about anything. Uh, And in the case of the Roman numerals, for most 
purposes, including record keeping, accounting, uh, writing history, uh, the Roman numerals worked just fine. It was only when you wanted to do really complicated multiplications or really big numbers uh, that the Hindu Arabic numerals had an obvious advantage. Or if you were reading texts which had come from other places where they were already using those numerals, you might as well keep within the system that they were using. So they gradually spread across Europe, uh, and astronomers were using them from the 12th century onwards uh, in various parts of Europe, uh, but they don't really become completely universal until really the Renaissance into the into the sort of 16th century uh, do people give up the Roman numerals altogether. And of course, we still see them today in various places. So it's an interesting transition. And it's a transition that responds to the need uh, and the utility of the new system. Another aspect of the book that I really enjoyed is that you almost give the reader a sense of what an education at that time would have been like. You honestly impart or describe some of the lessons that a student at a monastery or going into a university, the books they would have read, or you actually walk people through, here is a medieval calendar section, let me walk you through what each one of these scribbles and lines and columns means, and you just really you know, open up the richness of information contained in those documents. And if, and you also do, as you describe in the prologue, that many of the translations in the book are your own. Talk a little bit about that process of, I guess, going to the original artifacts, if you will, and original documents and manuscripts, and really deciphering them and, and, and opening them up and getting into the mind of what a medieval student would uh, encounter. Yeah, there's a few parts to that. The first thing was, I was really frustrated of reading books where the author would just say, this was an amazing innovation, but not really explain why it was so special or how it worked. And I, I'm a historian, but I also want to know about how stuff works. And so when people said, you know, the Roman numerals were something that you could actually calculate with far more easily than people often assume, I thought, well, why do they never actually explain how you do this. So I wanted to explain for people how science worked in the Middle Ages. And partly that was because I didn't want people to take my word for it. I didn't want them to have to say, oh, well, Seb Falk says this was advanced, so I just have to believe him. I wanted them to see for themselves. And the best way for them to see for themselves, I figured out, was to follow John Westwick as he learned. So we follow John Westwick. And the great thing about John Westwick was because he was a kind of relatively unknown figure, he didn't know everything. He wasn't an expert in everything. He made mistakes. So we can follow him as he learned and we can see uh, how he he learned these fairly basic mathematics right up to more complex astronomy and how instruments worked, uh, even some of the most complicated astronomical instruments. The second part to do with the poetry was I really wanted people to see how science fitted in to the culture of the age uh, as broadly as I possibly could. So I included poetry in English, French, Latin, Arabic, Italian. Uh, I just really wanted people to see how science was part of medieval culture. And in order to do that, I felt that the poetry would kind of try and bring it to life for people. And they could maybe sound it out in the, in the languages in which it was written, as well as reading my translations of it, to try and get a bit of a sense uh, of, the, of the period, a bit of a sense of the time that these things were being studied in. 
And you're absolutely right that we need to try and get hands-on as much as we possibly can with the objects in which medieval science survives, whether that's the instruments like the astrolabe, the brass instruments that you can find in museums today, or whether that's in the manuscripts uh, that uh, are stored in libraries around the world. And one of the great advantages that we have today, and even uh, in this era of lockdowns and uh, closed museums and libraries, is that uh, online, so many manuscripts have been digitized. So I can go on the library of the British, uh, go on the website of the British Library or the National Library in, in France or many, many other libraries around the world, and I can look at their manuscripts online. I can see the handwriting of these medieval scholars. I can practically touch the manuscripts. Uh, and it was the sense of that tactile nature, that kind of sense of immersing yourself in medieval scholarship that I really wanted to give to readers. And I got the sense, too, that there is still much yet to be discovered. If we look at the manuscript that was identified or attributed to John of Westwick, it wasn't that long ago that that identification was made, and it took a lot of sleuthing and finding other comparable uh, manuscripts and looking for one that had an attribution to do it. But the point is, is it wasn't that long ago, and finding manuscripts to reconstruct these fascinating and ancient devices are still being uncovered, and I'm sure the digitization of these documents is hopefully encouraging and, and facilitating for their discoveries. Yes, absolutely. And people would be amazed. The vast, vast majority of medieval scientific treatises, scientific writings, have never been edited, have never been published. They are there in manuscripts, well looked after by libraries, uh, but you have to go and read the actual manuscript, read the handwriting, read the Latin or whatever language it's in to be able to access it. Uh, and of course, they're being digitized apace, faster faster than ever before, but still there are many of them that have never been digitized. And if they have been digitized, it's still a human job. We haven't got the AI to transcribe it and translate it for us yet. So if anybody out there is thinking of doing a history PhD, I recommend medieval science because there's a huge amount of work to do. Out of curiosity, what percentage of these documents are in the hands of private collections that may be inaccessible? And I'm just free associating, thinking about some of the codexes from the Leonardo da Vinci. Some have been acquired at auction or in private collections and may not be available for viewing. But if you had to give a ballpark figure, you know, what percentage of, you know, if you could guess of, of documents would be available for uh, analysis at museums and libraries? I mean, it's impossible to say, really, because uh, so many private collectors, for perfectly good reasons, they don't want to advertise what they've got to everybody, keep their keep their collections private. They don't let us know what they've got. And in many cases, they've been in the hands of families for generations, if not centuries. I mean, I guess it could be half that are still in private hands, uh, but it, it will only ever be a guess. What we do have is a huge number that are being picked up and looked after by public collections, and more every day. There's a, a really important medieval scientific manuscript produced by a guy who was the personal physician of King Henry VII of England that helped broker the marriage alliance that ended the War of the Roses. Lewis of Kellyan was just bought last week by the British Library and uh, put online, digitized and put online for anybody to read. And until then, it had always been in private hands. No historian even knew it existed uh, until a few weeks ago. Oh, that's remarkable. 
Yeah, and it's full of really interesting texts and and new discoveries. Some texts that we thought had been lost that were described in other manuscripts but didn't survive. Uh, and if this manuscript had just been in a private library uh, and historians had never had access to it. I sense that you have your next project in mind. <laughs> there are other people working on that, but I'd, I'd love to be involved. How has your study of medieval science influenced your daily life, you know, outside of the of the library and museum. I know you're a, a curator as well. And of course, I had images in my head of you teaching your children. Is it Beattie's uh, hand gestures of counting up to a 9,999 9, just by, by finger movements? And, you know, how, how, how has uh, your study, you know, influenced your, your daily life, modern life? You know, it makes me look up to the stars a lot more. We don't have time to do that most of the time. And those of us who live in cities are uh, suffering from light pollution and, and we can barely see the stars. But before I studied this, I, I hardly took time to look up above my head. Uh, but when you do, you see there's just amazing array of uh, interesting things going on up there. And Almost every night now, I look up with my kids and we look at the phases of the moon, or right now, um, everybody should be looking up uh, to see Jupiter and Saturn uh, coming together. And on, on the 21st of December, Jupiter and Saturn are going to come together in a conjunction. And Jupiter and Saturn, of course, can be seen with the naked eye, uh, and you can see those two planets approach each other. And it's just fascinating to watch these stars moving like some cosmic dance. Uh, and, uh, and that's something that I've really had new respect for uh, the, the medieval understanding of that and the ways that medieval people patiently watched and drew up theories and, and uh, tried to make predictions and calculated things like eclipses uh, with really astonishing accuracy, uh, but just, just watched just were patient, just were quiet and calm and looked at the sky. You know, we don't take long enough in today's life uh, to, to stop and look at things and look around ourselves. And sometimes, you know, just by looking above our heads, uh, we can learn an awful lot. I would second that. And, you know, I guess I want to end the interview with just one thought, which is, you know, the, there's so many places in the book where I learned little tidbits about the modern world that I wasn't aware of, you know, why the days of the week are named as they are. So you can really delve, you've delved many times into the Latin roots of existing terms. And again, that gives you at least a intellectual thread of history of sort of how it came to be. And I found those to be fascinating. No, there's, there's just too many of those to mention here on this short podcast. But there's also in the book so many of little anecdotes. And there was one about, I, I think his name was Eilmer of Malmesbury, who seemed to be this daredevil monk who apparently strapped on something resembling a glider in the 12th century and jumped off a tower. Now, this was 400 years before Leonardo da Vinci was sketching ideas for some sort of you know, human you know, flight contraption. And so when I, that was just one paragraph in the book. And when I put it back, I just put it down on my lap for a second and thought, ah, now I know what the Dark Ages are. The Dark Ages are, in fact, my ignorance as a modern reader of the innovation and culture of that time. It's not the other way around. It's not that they were ignorant and I am somehow enlightened, but rather there's so much yet to discover of that fascinating period. Yeah, I mean, the Dark Ages is a is an early modern slander, right? And we should just let go of that and think about these fascinating individuals. Like, in any era, there's going to be someone like Aylmer of Malmesbury who's just going to say, you know what, I'll give it a go. 
I'll try this glider out. Nobody else is going to do it. So I'm going to strap this thing to myself and jump off a tower. And he broke both his legs, but he survived. Now, you know, you can't say that that was a great success, but he's an experimenter. And we always see that, you know, we see that with the people who injected themselves with the, with the first vaccinations or took the medicines that they couldn't find other volunteers to try out. And and we see that in any period. Uh, and yeah, I, my I just really in this book wanted to give people a good time. I wanted people to enjoy reading about the Middle Ages as well as learning about the science. And uh, people love to learn about etymologies. It's one thing that I've realised since I've been writing. People always want to know. You know, they want to know that digit comes from digit when we talk about digital technology comes from numbers of course comes from fingers because of the finger counting so we're all doing finger counting whenever we're doing anything digital and what's interesting about that is not just that so many of these modern ideas have a kind of med- medieval etymology but also uh, that that interest in etymology that interest in the origins of words was something medieval people were interested too the most popular encyclopedia of the Middle Ages was called the Etymologies, and it was all about understanding the world through understanding where words come from. And so, you know, even the fact that we're interested in where words come from is something that we find in the Middle Ages. So whenever we think about something that we're interested in today, it takes us back to the Middle Ages, and that's what I love about the period. Well, the reference books that are mentioned throughout the text, again, these are going to be some of the essential works that, um, you know, the the students and educated professionals would be referring to all the time. And I'm thinking of Palladius's The Work of Farming, works of Ptolemy, um, you know, I guess his name is Priscian, Priscian's Mm -hmm. Institutes of Grammar. You know, I would love to read an English translation of some of those to try to just I don't know. Sometimes what's new is what's been forgotten. And just as you describe in this book, there's just so many nuggets of wisdom that have kind of long been forgotten, but would be absolutely fascinating to know today. So my uh, to-read list, hopefully if I could you know, ever get to those, I would love to. Well, Seb Falk, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. I encourage everyone to check out the book. It's called The Light Ages, The Surprising Story of Medieval Science. Thank you very much, Seb. Thank you for having me. You know, in the end, I came away thinking that a bird's eye view of the Middle Ages is so important because due to those technological limitations of the time, and I'm thinking here primarily of the lack of widespread printing and distribution of books, that the time scale of intellectual progress was just so much longer than it is today. So those textbooks they had, they were often copies or translation of ancient manuscripts or else modern works, and I say that with air quotes, of a century old or more. And so I got this distinct feeling while reading the book that medieval scholarship was a great example of sci-fi author William Gibson's oft-cited quote, the future is here, it's just not very evenly distributed. Because in medieval times, it was across geographies, across languages, even across different numerary systems that medieval scholars had to discover, translate, and to ultimately integrate these disparate sources into their thinking. And that's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to hear an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us over at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. 
Speaking of Patreon, I want to personally thank patrons like Dale LeMaster, David Noel, Charles Blyle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Joel, Kyle Rihalla, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, and Herring Chang. Genuinely thank you all for your continued support. Inquiring Minds is produced by me, Adam Isaac, and was today hosted by Adam Bristol, filling in for Indre Viscontis, who will be back next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.